This is Salvatore Totino on Soundstage Access. Hello and welcome to another episode of Soundstage Access, a podcast that brings you in-depth to discuss many of the complex, beautiful, and creative sides of filmmaking. I'm your host, Brando Benetton, and my guest this week is Salvatore Totino, an accomplished cinematographer whose credits include Bird Box, The Da Vinci Code, Spider-Man Homecoming, and the upcoming Space Jam A New Legacy. In today's conversation, the 56-year-old and I discuss a wide range of topics. From Sal's career-long relationship with Oscar-winning director Ron Howard, and the creative choices they made during the challenging production of their Oscar darling Cinderella Man, the death-defying experience of shooting Everest, the true story of the extreme 1996 blizzard that claimed the lives of eight mountain climbers. Also, why Sal has spent most of his career choosing to shoot with at least two cameras simultaneously on most of his films. All of this and much more. If it's your first time enjoying the show, you might want to hit that subscribe button to find all previous episodes from Soundstage Access. Make sure you track us down on Facebook or Twitter to catch a preview of the amazing guests we'll be interviewing this season. But now, without further ado, let's go to our conversation. Sal, thank you so, so much for taking the time to join us. It's, it's really a pleasure. There's so many ways we can begin this conversation, but I thought it would be interesting to begin by, by talking about working your way up as a camera assistant and respecting the apprenticeship process for cinematographers and the vital role that a mentor can have in your life. So about it, you have to say, quote, I promote from within the team and really believe in the apprenticeship program. By apprenticing, you learn from your mentor about the struggles he's going through or she's going through, as opposed to just being put in the middle of it. So I was wondering if we could talk about people like Paul Gaffney and Harry Savitas and the role that they had in, in your early years as a cinematographer and what were some of the most valuable concepts they were passing on to you? You know, it wasn't just the technical aspects. All that technical stuff is easy to learn. Cameras, a machine, and you know, basically has an instruction booklet. It's how you use those tools and where you take those tools. And the big thing that I really learned, you know, Paul Gaffney, one of the big things he said to me was, always listen. When you hear the director's voice, no matter what you're doing, pay attention to what he's saying. The DP's voice, pay attention to what he's saying. You could be doing something else, you could be focused on something, but you're listening. So it's kind of like a multitasking, but a multi-listening. And what that does is through osmosis, you're learning. You're learning about how that team, that director and cinematographer are communicating, how they're putting the project together, how they're setting up their shots, what they're thinking, how they're going to move ahead. Uh, or even if there's a conflict, you know, you, you see and you learn from all of that. And I think that that, you know, gives you some tools that you can't learn in a book. You, you know, because every situation is a different situation. The film industry isn't a mathematical equation. It's constantly changing. You could be starting the day in the same situation you've started 100 times before, and by lunch, it is 180 degrees difference from the direction you're going in. So learning by listening, I think, is a big deal. And I think a lot of people don't pay attention to that, especially today. And I think that this is one of the biggest things that bothers me about the digital photography now is that it's made people lazy. And when you're on set, what you notice is a lot of a lot of people just standing around, they're on their phones. 
they're constantly on social media. They're, you know, they're not there. They're not in the moment. They're not working towards the final goal together. They're not paying attention. I mean, they are working. When you need them, you call them, they come, you know, they come running, but they're not, they're not really paying attention. They're not getting one step ahead. They're not contributing. And what's happened, I think, is that because digital is so easy and everybody thinks they could just pick up a camera and start filming, that, you know, the market is flooded with a lot of people that can shoot. It's one thing to shoot, to capture something. It's another thing to create and communicate and learn and understand, not just learn, but understand how to put a project together and how to bring an emotional point of view or how you want to help portray with the director the character's emotions that are in that story. And I think a lot of that comes from the apprenticeship. You talk about Renaissance painters. Yeah, the world was very different at the time. It was modern to them at the time. But to paint, you had to understand the pigment. You had to understand how to mix the pigment. You had to understand how to layer it, how to mix it, you know, in Renaissance, how to, how to plaster, how to do charcoal cartoons first and then layer the paint in the plaster and to apply it onto a wall. You don't just pick up and do that. It takes time. It takes time and it takes time to understand what that is. And when you're apprenticing and you're mixing the pigment for the master or the person above you, you're also listening to the artist and you're hearing the struggles that he's gone through and his communications. Look, I, what we do is commerce, but it's also an art. You know, we're kind of a bunch of misfits in a way to be in this business because it's so crazy and up and down. But you really put a part of your soul into your project. So I don't understand why a lot of people don't really want to apprentice and learn, you know, learn from masters and then take it and go beyond them. That was the thing about with working with Harris. Harris took a lot of chances, a lot of risks. He was, he was experimenting in ways that a lot of people weren't experimenting with film. And you really noticed the difference in his work. So, you know, I really am a true believer in the apprenticeship. And I try to apprentice young, young people today that, that really want to learn. However, there's times when people come in and they just immediately think, oh, can I operate the camera today? <laughs> like, it doesn't work like that. You need to understand what that's about. You need to understand what the shot is about. What story you're trying to tell in that shot. What's the shot before that shot? What's the shot after that shot? Where are you going to cut to? And understanding how to block a scene. The film business is like that. It's just, it's changing. So you need that basic knowledge to help you evolve, to change with it and to improve it. Of all the projects that we could begin talking about, I'm skipping ahead of a number of years, but I was thinking about Cinderella Man. I was rewatching that a couple nights ago, and it was fascinating to hear you talk about, number one, the limitations in the set, and then the correlation between a lens choice and emotion. Quote, the plan for Cinderella Man was to make the audience feel as if they were there. In Russell Crowe's apartment, I was committed to not remove walls from the set, and that often affected our choice of lenses. It shaped the way the audience perceives the scenes at home, as well as the ones in the ring. Well, it, it wasn't a technical limitation in the apartment, the Cinderella Man, and I've spoke about this in the past. It was a choice, and it was a choice, and I was really lucky in a, in a sense, because unfortunately, R Russell had a shoulder injury in pre-production and we had to push the film. The sets were built and myself, Ron, the AD, the production designer stayed on and we still prepped. 
So our offices were above the stage and I spent a lot of time sitting in, in the Braddock apartment set. And when we designed the set with Wynn Thomas, we designed it so that all the walls pretty much and the ceiling was removable so that I can get any angle from anywhere. You know, Ron, Ron is a, a director who likes a lot of coverage. So you try to prepare yourself to be able to cover anything. But in those moments that I was just sitting alone in that apartment, it was so depressing. It was dressed, you know, it's just so, you know, you really felt what the Braddocks must have felt like. And I was like, wow, fuck. I, I want the audience to feel this. You know, how are they going to feel it? I'm like, well, you know what? I'm going to always keep that lens in that dimension. The, the lens never comes out of the dimension. So that was the choice. It wasn't a technical lim limitation. It was actually an emotional, an aesthetic, a visual choice to help tell that story, to help the audience feel. It's a subconscious feeling when you're watching a film and, and you start to, to feel a little uncomfortable. You know, the, the movie Last Exit to Brooklyn, they intentionally timed a little green in the movie. Go back and watch that film. There's a little a slight on the current of green in the overall film because green is uh, emotionally nauseating. You know, they wanted the audience, to, the cinematographer, Stefan Chapsky, I remember reading about it at the time, and he wanted the audience to feel like that. So cinematography isn't just about a light and a lens. You know, it's storytelling. What is your thought process in regards to choosing to cover one scene with a wide lens as opposed to a longer lens? Is that always something that you try and narrow down to, to emotion? It, yes, a lot of times it is down to emotion. And I'll give you another example from Cinderella Man. Uh, Jim Braddock is going to the docks really early in the morning. He's walking in the street, sort of pre-dawn. And I thought about it. It's easy to, to do sort of a close-up with a steady cam on a 35 mil lens in a little closer and get a little bit more of a background and still keep the focus shallow. That was what we were looking at for a second. And I thought, you know what? He's got a determination here at the moment where he needs to put food on his table. And I wanted the audience just to, to be more with him at that point. And I, and I switched the lens, which was much more difficult for the focus puller because we went to a 65, as opposed to a 35. And I shot it wide open, but you're just inside of his eyes. And Russell, Russell's an incredible actor. When you've got an actor like that, that knows that you're on that kind of lens and you're on his eyes, he started to tell a story through his eyes, just walking down the street. And I remember looking at Daly's getting all choked up. Now, if I was doing something maybe a little more artistic, I, I might've stayed on the 35 and went a little offset to just give myself a little bit more of that background, see a little bit more down that street and still kind of keep his face in. But I don't think you as the audience would have felt it as much. Now, would have done that on Spider-Man? No, no, right. it wasn't that kind of story that you were telling. Let me offer you another quote in regards to the boxing sequences. Quote, while in pre-production, we would test the look of the fight in a gym in the valley. I got in the ring with Russell Crowe and another boxer. We studied the choreography, moved around the boxers without the camera at first, and it was just like doing a dance. Close quote. So I was wondering what were yours and Ron Howard's fears going into the movie in, in regards to these <laughs> whole boxing sequences? That was funny. And what was the creative discovery from that? I, I didn't have a fear about it. Ron did. He was like, so, 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 how are we going to get a ring? 
What are you going to do? How are you going to get in there with the camera and not hurt anybody? You know, and I was like, Ron, I, yeah, I boxed when I was a kid. We're going to work it out. It'll be fine. It'll be fine. You sure? You sure? I mean, I, I can't get anybody hurt, you know, and, and he's right. But I, I just, I've had a confidence about it. Knowing that I'm with professional actors, there's one, I never, nobody made a mistake. And not once did I get hit or did once any of the actors get hurt because that camera was in the fight with them, you know? So we would literally walk through the fight with a stand-in and a uh, stunt coordinator in the beginning before the actors were on set. So I had a good understanding of how that fight was choreographed. Then Russell would come in with one of the other boxers and we'd walk it through. And I'd be like, I'm going to be here with the camera, with the other camera over here. And I was in the ring with them and, and away we went. It was a challenge. We had 400 extras, which is not a lot of people. And then we had 10,000 blow-up dolls. There was a company who made these life, lifestyle blow-up dolls. Not like what, you know, not like what you find in an adult novelty store. And uh, they were just the torsos. Wardrobe department dressed them all, hats, jackets, and we laid them out throughout the arena. And I lit it dark. And then you put a couple of real people and put a couple of things moving and have a fan move. And it, and it kind of moves in the background. You know, it's interesting. In World War II, one of the reasons the Germans never invaded the island of England, they thought England had a huge tank regiment. Because England had made these inflatable tanks. And they placed them strategically around the country. Large amounts of them. So the reconnaissance was not like today's reconnaissance, they'd be able to tell. But then, you know, Germans were flying reconnaissance planes going, holy shit, there's a huge tank regiment here. So it kind of held them off and held them off. So what we would do is uh, sometimes it, it took a while for the boxers to get warmed up and ready to come into the ring to fight. So we would shoot some of the audience stuff that we needed to do, the announcers, all that kind of thing, maybe shoot through doubles legs with the announcer. And that's kind of how we, we tackled it. We always made sure we weren't sitting around. You don't sit around with Ron. You don't. You move, you move, you move, you move. And, and we did a lot, we would do a lot of setups like that. And the winner, by unanimous decision, James J. Brown. You know, 2004, uh, it costs money. It costs a lot of money to CG that. And today it's, it's it's cheaper, but it was more cost effective for us to do the block dolls. We did some tests. You know, it was another wonderful reason to shoot on film. I mean, it was only film back then anyway. But the film had a certain amount of latitude. Digital today has so much more latitude. They see so much more into the blacks. And yeah. It becomes more of a post effect or having to deal with it in post. I like, I like when you can deal with it in camera. You know what you get, it's done, saves money and time. This last film I shot, The Postcard Killings, we shot a film and there's whole flashback sequences that take place in this film with the, this detective sort of piecing together these murders. I used an old Airy 2C that Panavision uh, modified to put a hand crank on. So I was hand cranking the film to vary the speed and then to reverse it and forward it so that I was triple exposing it and making it sort of jump around. And the editor was like, fuck, man, this would take forever to, to do this in the oven and you got it in camera. You know, uh, it's, it's nice to, when you get a chance to do that. I think it's really interesting for me how some cinematographers choose to also operate their own camera. 
it, it's part of telling that story. And you're so ingrained in the script and, and so hopefully in tune with the director and the story that you're trying to tell that sometimes there's little subtleties in operating that you can't express to an operator. You just, it's, an, it's instinctual. And when you know that the story so tightly and what you want your end result to be. So that's kind of why I like to operate. I also, I'm not good at sitting still. I don't like sitting at the monitors. On set, I never really sit down anyway. I'm always standing. But I got to be doing something all the time. <laughs> it's my ADD. So if you jump in and operate, even better. Are there ever values to delegating that part for a specific Oh, reason? yeah. There's, there's a lot of values in that, especially when you have a lot going on. So I have operators that I work with that I really trust. I have a relationship with. I express to them kind of where I want to go and the story I want to tell. And I really trust them. So especially when there's something really big, or a really big camera move involved and some equipment, that it's really important to have somebody that is on that. Because while they're rehearsing, rehearsing, rehearsing it, I can focus on the lighting. Because if I had a light and then rehearse technically difficult shots, it would just take forever. Yeah. So then I could just work out, I'll just jump on the beat camera, I'll get the little coverage that I need to get, and I, and I know that I trust my, my operators to, to cover those scenes really well. Allow me then to ask you about your relationship with Ron Howard. About him, you had to say, quote, Ron is a storyteller who's interested in finding different subject matters and approaching them differently. Our relationship is based on honesty, and he's constantly elevating his game, which is elevating my game, close quote. So I was wondering in what ways do you think he brings the best out of you as a cinematographer? I'm going to read a little quote from a poem. Please, yes. It's called Our Greatest Fears by uh, Mariana Williamson. And this is Ron. It's not just in some of us, it's in everyone. And as we let our own light shine, we unconsciously give others the permission to do the same. That's what it's like working with Ron. Ron works so hard that unconsciously he's giving you the tools to push yourself. So you push, you push, you push, you push because you want to do better. Not just to please him, but you want to do better for yourself because you see him wanting to do better for himself. So you're thinking, I want to do better. I want to work harder here. I want to make this better. Not just for them. You know, yes, of course, for him and for the film, but for me too. Then let me ask you a little bit about your process on a daily basis, because it's my understanding that you guys try to drive to set together, perhaps initiating that discussion as early yeah. as possible. Yeah. We get driven to set and from set every day. That's amazing. He'll get in the van in the morning and he's got his sides already out. And he always goes, morning, morning. Hey, then you guys sleep okay? Okay, great. Look. I was working on a shot list. I thought we'd start with it. I'm like, Ron, 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 wait a minute. Let's go get a cup of coffee first on the yeah. way to work. It's like, okay, 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 okay. He's just so excited. And that's what's so nice about it. And you, so you prepare. And sometimes things change. And when it, what's great, because then on your drive in, because crew usually has a pre-call to get equipment off trucks, you, you start telling them, like, hey, guys, uh, you'll call and say, look, I know we talked about starting with the dolly, but can you guys have the techno crane ready? So I'm going to do this one shot first, because I think if we do that first, we'll be able to get that out of the way. And that's what's sort of really wonderful about it, because it's not just about being efficient, but you're always talking about story. And you keep evolving 
as the film's working. So you come up with a plan and then you just keep elevating it. You keep elevating it, you know? I, I was reading somewhere that you guys were doing between sometimes 35 to 45 setups in a 10-hour day. Yeah. It's always interesting to ask ADs or cinematographers if they have a preference in regards to French hours versus 12 hours and five-day weeks or six-day weeks. Yeah, uh, five-day weeks, unless I'm on location, depending on where the location is. When I'm in Italy, I'd like a five-day week. Uh, yeah, so you can enjoy the weekend. Enjoy the weekends. I get on my bike and go. Nice. You know, consecutive days. Consecutive meaning you don't break for lunch, you bring some food around, and you work a 10-hour day. You don't stop. You get a lot done, and everybody has a life as well. I think you wind up getting more done than if you worked a 12-hour day and you had lunch. Because by the time you come back from lunch, and then there's a hair and a makeup, and the wardrobe, this, that, and the other thing, that one-hour lunch turns into two and a half hours before you're rolling film again. Hence the apprenticeship, again. Knowing how to prepare a job, knowing how to prep a job, if you're prep, you have the director who's prepared, the AD and all his team are on board to help support that movement. And you know, okay, this is how, these are the scenes we're shooting, that I need to have all this pre-lighting set so I could come in and just go. You need a plant in place. And you get that by experience. Let me ask you about Everest, because it sounds as if it was one of the most physically demanding. It was difficult, yeah. For all of you guys. Uh, when you first met with Balthazar, trying to choose what was gonna be shot where. Quote, we shot five weeks on location, another five weeks on stage. None of it was easy. We built the summit, ice falls, Hillary steps, everything else was locations. Again, uh, what were the conversations in regards to where to split up locations? And, and I was wondering, what were some of the biggest unforeseen dangers you were about to step into and didn't really know about at the time? I didn't think I was going to get nerve damage in my toes. I, I, I came very close to frostbite. I would say that that's probably the biggest danger. One time in scouting, we were on a glacier and we were all tethered together and I fell into a hole. Just all of a sudden, you know, you don't see it in the snow and it happened to be a crevasse. And being tethered together saved me from falling all the way under. It was in Valsamalis. You know, they kind of pulled me up and we laughed about it. We didn't think, you know, think about it in that sense, like how, because it was, well, you weren't rock climbing, you weren't mountain climbing, you were really going up the side of this glacier with just crampons and being tethered together. It was it didn't seem perilous at all. You know, next thing you know, you're, you're dangling. <laughs> the biggest challenge, though, was really taking the locations and trying to make it all seamless and the lighting really to match. Uh, there was a lot to overcome. The budget was tight on that film. There was a lot of push and pull back and forth. In the beginning, everything was like, we're going to do most of it on location. And then as we started really filming and prepping, you started realizing that you can't do it. we got to build this. we got to build the summit. We can't find a location that will look like the summit, even if we augmented it in post and then physically work there under those conditions. You know, it's a lot easier to work on stage and to bring in high-powered fans. There's a lot of safety involved there as opposed to being out in an environment. We had a location in, in Valsanales, which was supposed to be Camp 3 in Everest, and, you know, the tents were kind of cut into the side of the mountain, 
and the weather was was pretty bad that day. And we're filming. We had a little dolly track set up. The guys, we carried everything up. We're all tied in with each other. And Mountain Safety was like, uh, you got to get off. I'm like, what do you mean you got to get off? Avalanche warning. You got to get off. And I'm like, what are you talking about? The director's like, there's no avalanche coming. And they're like, off, everybody. The actor, before you even finish, the actors just, they just started going. And then we started going. I remember taking a couple of camera cases and then just jumping on my butt and sliding back down to the bottom. The cases helping everybody get off. So we got off and we moved uh, locations. About three hours later, an avalanche covered the whole set. And um, thank God for the mountain safety. They knew that we weren't in immediate danger, but they knew the danger was coming. And they knew that we had you know, some time to get off of it. And we did, and then, you know, unfortunately, people had to go back and dig all those tents out and put the set back together so we could finish filming it. All right, it's all on the table here. It hurts, it's dangerous, it destroys relationships, it's costing you all a small fortune. Are there any negative aspects? Yeah, to this I gotta story? ask the question, you know I do. Why are you climbing Everest? I thought I told you that there's an elementary school back home. And I've been going and talking to the kids there, and they actually helped me raise some of the money to come and gave me a flag to plant on the summit. And so I was thinking maybe it's uh, they see a, a regular guy can, you know, follow impossible dreams. Maybe they'll be inspired to do the same, I guess. I'm climbing Mount Everest because I can because to be able to climb that high and see that kind of beauty that nobody ever sees, would be a crime not to. I think that despite the limitations, you didn't shy away from having as complex pieces of equipment to, to provide the best shots. You know, I, I remember you guys rigged a, a head, um, oh my God, I'm blanking. Uh, on a remote head, a remote head on, on a sled. I don't think you had comfortable elevators to go up. No. So I was wondering what that dialogue was for you in regards to trying to battle the physical limitations on a day-to-day -day basis, but at the same time not settling, knowing that in the end, getting the sled with the rig would make it all you know better in the movie. You didn't. It sounds like you didn't take the easy route, and I wonder. Well, there, there wasn't an easy route. You know, there, there is an easy route when you have a bigger budget and you're helicoptering every piece of equipment on and off a mountain. And, you know, you're, you have a pre-rig crew and you could put in a whole cable camp system in place. We didn't have that. So it's like, all right, what are we going to do? How, how do we make this work? And then you start thinking, oh, okay, do, you, do we have a high-speed winch? Can we put a sled on a winch with a remote head? It's still not going to be quite so stable. Hey. You know, Dottie, who's a visual effects supervisor from Iceland. Dottie, you know, if we did this like this, do you think you'd be able to stabilize some of it? Okay, let me, and he's like, let me put some tracking markers out so that I can help stabilize it. So, you know, you start dialogue and working things and communication. But those ideas, you know, you're taking everyday life and trying to apply it. Now, you're not using high-speed winches off of construction equipment normally for something like that. You know, there are different types of winches, but you know to sort of do that. You know, this last film, Postcard Killings, there was miscommunication between Norway and us. And when we got to Norway, there's a, a semi-truck that we needed to tow in the cab of it. And, and they didn't have film towing equipment to do that. 
So the Norwegians like, look, we have this other truck. Well, the other truck would have taken too much rigging for cameras to get the cameras in position. It was much smaller. So I was looking at the big truck. I'm like, hey, guys, what about tow trucks that tow trucks? You know, they're big. You know, we've seen them all over. You see them on the highway all the time. And everybody looked at me like, I'm like, is there a company? Well, yeah, there's, there's one just down the road, not that far, you know, like 20 miles. It's not that far. That in Norway, it's not far, 20 miles. So, you know, we go, we, we see these big tow trucks that are the size of a bus. So we wound up, you know, looking at that. And I turned to the gaffer and I'm like, look, I want to be able to rig a light here and the grip. I want to be able to rig a camera here off of this. Do you think you could be done? And the crew gets excited because it's like, we're working with something we haven't worked out before. Now we got to figure this out. Well, yeah, if I get this clamp and then do that and make this kind of rig like this, yeah, g give me 20 minutes or give me 40, an hour, blah, blah, blah. You know, I'll get that rigged for you. You know, and, and everybody's like, oh, you're going to use the tow truck? Yeah, well, fuck, fuck yeah, I'm going to use the tow truck. Because that made it work. And I knew it was safe. Yes. I, I, I don't do things that aren't safe. That's, that's one thing I won't, I won't cross that line. I don't want anybody getting hurt or anybody getting killed. It's not worth it. I was interested in asking you about managing the scale of a project, which is supposed to deliver a big epic while still being a respectful and very intimate journey for, for these people. Mm -hmm and how you are able to discover emotion through composition specifically. Quote, you take all these elements of the cinematography, the set, the location, creating a refrigerated studio, and you're building a real moment. If you take the camera and put it in the right place, you can believe you're there with the characters, cold, freezing, dying. You make the viewers feel like they're the ones climbing the mountain. Okay, you know, you talk about dying. Jason Clark, you know, the director wanted the set to be really cold. So we sectioned off a part of the stage. We brought in snow business, brought in real snow, and refrigerator units. We got it down to about 27 degrees Fahrenheit. So you want it to feel real. Yeah. Now Jason Clark elevated that even more. Jason's like, all right, I, I want to be buried. I'm like, what? He goes, I want you to bury me, not film me until I'm freezing. So we put Jason in the side of the set and we snowed him in, and we waited, and he was freezing. There's no makeup, and all that acting is really his voice being frozen. It's very real, and you're in that moment, and it's a very personal moment. And you bring the camera in. I got the camera there so that you felt what Jason was feeling, but Jason brought that. That scene would have never been that powerful. If it wasn't for Jason going, I, I, I need I need to, this to feel real. Hi, sweetheart. How are you? You say I'm good. Are you warm, my love? I have a little frostbite. I think I'm gonna get tomato. The last thing I want to ask you about Everest is that you guys doubled a base camp in, in Chinachita. Yeah. And until I saw the green screen pictures, I couldn't believe it. There was two factors there. One was the sun. Yeah. And I felt that the sun was going to give, in Rome, was going to give me more of an opportunity. Then they wanted to, to bring it back to England. And I kept pushing the producers on that. 
this the the weather's so unpredictable in England and you can't light a set like that. And I felt it was really important that it wasn't in overcast light or rain. You know, that that's that's a big factor in the UK too. And I think that that's pushed the producers to really make Chinichita work out for us. It wasn't easy. It wasn't easy. They brought in all those rocks, housed the whole crew in Rome. <laughs> Which can get expensive for sure. Yeah, yeah, it was. And and I'm very grateful to the producers. Nikki Kenta Barish was the line producer who really sort of pushed really hard to make everything happen with a lot of budget constraint. I think a fascinating thing that is not really discussed is, is the emotional importance of an aspect ratio. Every movie sometimes has an aspect ratio that works for itself. And again, Everest and Bird Box are 239 and, and a movie like Inferno is a 185. And I was wondering if there are any kind of conversations in that regard. I was trying to get him to do Everest in 185, even Spider-Man. And the reason is I wanted more height in the frame. I wanted to see more of the environment around. I realized like after... Angels and Demons, which we shot 235, you know, which works great in dramas and dialogue. I wanted to see more. I felt I was missing a little bit, you know. So that's sometimes, sometimes I want to shoot 185 for that. I did uh, Tax Collector this past summer with David Ayer. I got him, to, got him to go 185 so we could see more of Los Angeles. I also want to ask you a little bit about your process of shooting single cam versus multi-cam? Because I can imagine that sometimes you do have two cameras, but when you have... No, I have two cameras all the time. All the, the, time. Only, the only time I really did a single camera film was just recently, The Postcard Killings, my first ever single camera movie. Wow, how come? Yeah. How come? I, I like the coverage. I think you end up compromising lighting when you have more than one camera. However, I think it elevates performances. When you have a camera that's on one actor and you have a second camera on another actor, everybody is performing at their best levels. And when one actor is performing at, at 100%, it elevates the other actor. But when an actor is off camera, a lot of times they're not coming in at 100% because they want to save it for when they're on camera. And then they're not quite at 100% doing their off-camera dialogue for the actors on camera. And then they try, but there's, there's sometimes just, they're not pushing it further or as far as they can push it. So that, that, that's a big reason for me. And, you know, Ron, Ron loves the coverage. It allows him a lot more to do editorially. And again, performances are elevated. So you look at any given Sunday, it's my first feature film. There are many times six cameras. You got to cover it. And so you got to figure out, okay, how this needs to be covered and shot. Cinderella and I'd always have two cameras in the ring and then sometimes there'd be a camera on an announcer or something while that was going on and then when I, when I brought those two cameras outside the ring then I brought other cameras in too. So sometimes those scenes from outside the ring would be covered with three four cameras. If you light it in a way that you could use multiple cameras I think it's important. My last question for you regards you know your legacy what the conversation has been like with yourself in regards to all the movies you have helped create and all the movies you're still looking to create i want to keep working until i can't anymore until i'm dead it's all about story you know I, I, i'm hoping to be able to do more films that are really story based films that that move me in a way that that's not always the case but 
as far as you know my work i i just i, I want to continue to work i want to keep elevating myself i want to keep doing good work and i want to inspire people and i want people to learn from me and there you have it folks thank you to sal for welcoming us into his home to record this episode i also want to give one more shout out to eric boss who since we launched our show has been the real unsung hero mixing every one of these episodes with such care. Be sure to check out Sal's new movie, Space Jam, A New Legacy, which will hit theaters and HBO Max later this summer. If you enjoy your program, you can learn more by finding us on Facebook and Twitter. We ask you to please help us by taking a moment to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Send your favorite episode to a friend to help fellow cinephiles and new listeners discover the show. I'm Brando Benetton, and you've been listening to Soundstage Access.